Welcome to Back in the Grind, a podcast about life, music, people, and the stories that bring us closer. My name's Pepe, and today I'll be talking with John Warm of the band Rent Strike. I first began to communicate with John when he wrote to me in federal prison. After time went on and I got released, we met in person, and John gave me such a wonderful hug. I'll never forget it. It was one of the best hugs I got after I got released from prison. We talk about that in this episode. We also talk about making bread, the concept of time. We get into the value of psychological alchemy and engaging the unconscious. We talk a little bit about Carl Jung and the ego. But before we get into that, I have one request for you. If you enjoy this podcast, help us out. What we're trying to do is get more reviews. If you leave us a rating on Spotify or a review on Apple Podcasts, It'll really help the podcast grow. And the more the podcast grows, the more people that we can reach out to and the larger variety of people we can bring on to the podcast. One other thing that you can do is to simply share this episode or any episode that you really enjoyed with a friend who you think might like it. Enjoy this episode as we bring you closer to John Warren of Red Strike. Hey, John. Welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to have you here. Hey, Pepe. It's really awesome to be here. Good to to talk to you. Good to see your face. So you had mentioned uh, several topics that we could possibly discuss when I reached out to you. Before I get into any of those, I do want to bring up two things, hugs and bread. So we started communicating when I was locked up in prison. You reached out to me through letter writing mm-hmm. and i'm not sure how long we were communicating that way but we've definitely been in communication for a year or two before we actually ever met each other but i was released and there was a show in new haven connecticut with apes of the state yes. doom scroll folk punk dad and chesky at the state house rest in peace yes so that was the first show I attended after I got out of prison. I didn't oh, even, I yeah, I wasn't even sure I was going to be able to attend that show because they were, long story short, they were keeping me in custody longer than my actual release date. Uh-huh. And um, thankfully, uh, through Congress, not just on my behalf, but um, they were doing this to like quite a few number of federal inmates around the country. Congress uh-huh. forced them to like release people. So I, I literally didn't think I'd be able to make it that show. But anyways, it was kind of a fascinating show because that was when I first met April from Apes of the State. That was also when I first met Will, Folk Punk Dad, my co-host. And then I was there, you know, the show was going on. And at the end of the last set, it was Chesky. He called me up on stage. I said a few words. Uh-huh. I remember and, that. Um, yeah. So distinctly. I remember so, that so distinctly. Which is, you know, my daughter actually recorded that. Oh, which is which is so awesome. So I might yeah, I might end up trying to put that out on something. That'd be but, awesome. Um, that, that was like a really inspiring moment. Man. Yeah. Yeah. That awesome. Well, that whole day was inspiring. And one of the most inspiring parts for me was after I got down off the stage, you had come up to me and you said, Pepe, it's John. And I just kind of stared at you like <laughs> I, I what? Like, because I'm thinking like, okay, the, the first John that came to my mind was John Warren from communicating in prison but i was writing to you in michigan and it made no sense to me that you would be there at that show 
Like I had no idea. And then you're like, it's John Warm. And then I just hugged you. I don't know if you remember this moment or not, but like it was an intense hug. Yeah, I do remember. I, I very distinctly remember that. Yes. So that was probably my favorite hug. <laughs> other than people I knew. Like our previously. Pitch, that was my favorite. Or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just hugged you for, I don't know. It, it must have been close to a minute without even speaking. That was awesome. Seriously yeah. awesome. It was a lot because, you know, the fact that you had reached out to me, you had written me these letters and we communicated quite a bit. You know, I wrote my blog. The first post I really did on my blog was response to a question you had sent Mm me. So it was really meaningful for me to see you there. You were you were touring with Doomscroll. You were performing with them. That's why you were there. I had no idea that that was going on. So I was really shocked to see you there. And, you know, you've never seen me before. So like before I got on stage, we probably like walking back and forth behind past each other, but not realizing who each other were. I think I realized that it was you but like also like you know it's your hometown and like you know you were catching up with like a million people i think i was like oh you know what i think that's pepe because i knew you had just gotten out or like we're supposed to and yeah and then you went up on stage and i was like oh okay yeah no it was it was awesome you know like i said i also met all those other folks who have been uh, very helpful with everything that i've been working on lately so that was great and then i don't know a couple months go by and you and I are staying in communication, obviously. Uh, we were still, we had written each other back and forth a couple of times, even on the outside, once I got out. And you had sent me and my wife some bread. Uh, yes. You like overnighted it through the mail. <laughs> and then, so it was just another profound moment for me. I mean, I know I think of like breaking bread. You know, I have a really close friend, Ben, aka Ben Absurdo. He does music. And I remember the first time we, we communicated through email before we ever met. And the first time I met him, I brought bread to his apartment in New York. And we just kind of shared this loaf of bread. But there's something about it. It's like, it's not simply saying like we're friends. It's saying like, we're not enemies. It's like more than just being friends. There's something more to it. The fact that, you know, me and my wife were sitting there breaking bread. I believe like I sent you a picture of the dinner we made the first night mm-hmm. with your bread. Mm-hmm. I appreciate it. Your, your kindness has been overwhelming. And inspiring well i will say that bread was in repayment for two bags of very very nice coffee that you had sent to us like it was like it was definitely not apropos of nothing but that's part of like the breaking bread thing too you know it doesn't matter who's bringing the bread to the table it's like we're all bringing something to the table you know Mm -hmm. whether that's just ourselves you know it's all reciprocity i mean when i say like the bread was literally the least i could do like it was such a powerful and simple thing it's 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 been with us for a long time. Bread's been with us for a long time. It's come to symbolize many things. My partner just recently got like this really cool tarot deck. The pentacles in the deck are like represented by loaves of bread. The coin is like so often like the symbol of the material world and stuff. But it's like, what do you buy with the coin anyway? It's bread, you know, it's it's a very fundamental thing. You know, we all got to eat like different cultures around the world have different forms of bread and stuff that's a very powerful and wonderful and human thing i fucking love bread and it seems like from my understanding and and you are aware of this we talked about this quite a bit during covid i was locked up so i went into prison before covid started shortly before and through the the brunt of covid i was in there and you uh probably more than most people i spoke to were kind of like I was asking you like what the world was like out there during COVID. Uh-huh. And, and we talked about that quite a bit. 
Um, we didn't really talk about bread. Maybe you might have mentioned it. I don't remember. But it seemed like a lot of people started to like get into this making bread like during COVID. Is that when you started to do that? No, I actually started a little a couple years before COVID. Yeah, my friend, I was staying at a friend's house and they just had a book on the top shelf that was like easy bread recipes. And I was like, bread, I remember, oh my God, you know, I was a, I was a troubled youth and there was like a school associated like therapist they would send the kids to sometimes. I remember like talking to this therapist, I was probably like eight or nine years old. He was frustrated with me because I was being kind of recalcitrant and he was like, what's your, well, okay, like, what's your favorite food? And I was like, bread. And he was like, okay, we can't get anything done here like this. You're being a little shit. But I was like being so serious. Like bread is like 100% my favorite food. It always has been. I love, you know, like I could seriously take down a full fresh loaf of bread in one sitting. No problem. Bread's great. So I've, I've always loved bread and uh, yeah, started making it. I started, first one I made was like this loaf of like very dark pumpernickel rye. That was really sloppy and ugly, but like so delicious and wonderful and like putting butter on it. I remember it so well, pulling that loaf out of the oven. And then I, st I started doing sourdough like pretty much immediately after that. And then it was like money during COVID. Everyone started baking bread and I was like, <laughs> people were like hitting me up and they were like, how do you make bread? And I was like, I'll tell you, how, I'll tell you what works for me or whatever. Because it is kind of, it's kind of like a learning curve. And I think that that's why it was such an appealing thing in covid i mean apart from like the material everyone was sold out of yeast it was like toilet paper and fucking instant yeast were like gone from every grocery store show so everyone was how you know what are we going to do like oh my god we're going to have to go back to the frontier times or whatever and make our own bread out of wild yeast and so a bunch of people i think fell down that rabbit hole but kind of came out of it on the other side with this very peaceful hobby that there's immediate payoff. It's like a time investment, right? You know, you got to let the loaf rise or whatever, but like it's a pretty immediate payoff. You get delicious bread better than you find in a store, you know. You get a really wonderful payoff. I think people were really hurting for community and connection in those moments. And like, again, like I think bread, even from a distance, it's like hard not to feel kind of like some sort of connection when your hands are like in dough. Like it's just like such a, Mm, there's just like a history to you know human beings working with. and i think like the way we make bread now is maybe kind of far removed you know a lot of people have bread machines or whatever kind of far removed from how people have been making bread for a long time but like there's an element of connection to it that i think a lot of people were drawn to at that moment and yeah just the speed you know we were all forced to like slow down a whole lot for a brief beautiful period of time we all slowed down a lot and like bread is such a perfect slow activity. It's just long periods of waiting punctuated by like manipulating the dough and like, you know, strengthening the gluten, whatever this, that and the other. But it's fundamentally the, the key ingredient in good bread is time. I don't know. It's like anathema to like, you know, the mass production kind of like thin margin kind of means of production that dominates society where like everything has to be like quickly reproducible. You know, bread, bread just requires like good bread requires like more of a time investment. And that's that's something that I think like we were all kind of drawn to whether we wanted it or not during COVID, during those early days of COVID, especially. I was baking a lot during that period of time. I went and I, I was staying with my parents at the time. And bread is something that I mean, it brought us together too. like 
my mom and I like will send pictures of bread we bake to each other. It's fun bonding experience too with my family. And um, yeah, such a such a wonderful thing. It's so, it's so wonderful to like. It's not ideal, but like it's so wonderful to be able to like put a loaf in a box and like wrap it up in some you know beeswax paper and like send it off to pals. You know, I've sent some to you and like. I stand by that, like, after a surgery, recovery from a surgery, like, bread heals. Bread heals the soul and the body. And I've, like, overnighted loaves to friends who are, like, recovering from surgeries and stuff. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a powerful thing. Yeah, there's a very human element to it that, you know, you were describing. And just, especially if you don't use the bread machine, right? If you're uh-huh. kneading the dough, it's, like, the, the human connection, literally, with the dough. And then the connection of uh, sharing it. There's a mm-hmm. very human element. It's also like fascinating to hear you just kind of talk about the experience of COVID. For me, it was very different than what the average right. person went through. Like just to hear you be like, yeah, they were out of like toilet paper, which isn't too surprising. But they're out of right. yeast. And it's like, oh, I didn't know that. Like it's just like it was That's like, right. okay, there's another element of something I was unaware of that the majority of like society was participating in. So even now, like, you know, it's been a while, but it always fascinates me to hear people talk about their experience during COVID. I remember writing you and I remember just being like, so, you know, like obviously everyone was like scared at that time, but I remember like being so horrified at like what you were saying conditions were like. And I mean, you can't isolate in a, like, there's no way, there's no way to isolate in a prison. There's, it's simply not, you can't do it. Yeah. So it was like, I mean, in my own way, like it was, it was eye opening for me. Like our communicate was like, eye-opening for me and it's like of course like covid was one of those things that feels like it accelerated everything and like shit where shit was bad i.e up inside of a prison like shit just got like so much more chaotic and worse and like nonsensical and like inhuman and incompassionate so i'll offer you some perspective that perhaps a lot of people in prison would maybe not say or uh-huh. want to discuss nowadays but the perspective for us I don't want to say all of us. It wasn't the perspective that I held. I was concerned that a lot of prisoners had this perspective. But there was this idea that, well, COVID is coming and they might release more of us from prison because of the conditions we were in. And then there was this, and I, look, I'm not bashing anybody. I understand this, right? I completely understand this as someone who was locked in a prison. But there was a desire amongst a pretty decent segment of the inmate population to have COVID get worse. So we would have a better chance of getting out. Right. And that was before it ever like came into the prison, but I heard those conversations a lot, you know, and especially early on, like before we knew as much as we did about COVID, it was like pretty scary, but that was the stance that a lot of people had. Like I said, it's understandable for someone who like doesn't want to be in a prison, but at the same time, it's like, it's kind of a scary thought to to wish it to be worse, you know, and get worse. I mean, I think like even on the outside, I remember thinking, you know, seeing photos and like, you know, our car, like carbon emissions were down for the first time fucking ever in March of 2020. And it was like, you'd see pictures of like empty streets and stuff. I know it's obviously not the full picture and stuff, but like, when the push towards like getting people back to work and like quote unquote re- reopening the economy, when those conversations were happening, I think there was like, same as you, you know, not a position that maybe I share, but like kind of an understandable streak of thought that was, 
if only COVID were worse, if only people were bleeding from their eyeballs, you know, then they wouldn't mm -hmm. be sending people back to, you know, like, so yeah, I, I get it. I think that that, I think that that perspective, like was present on, on the outside, certainly. And like, I think like, you know, from like a, whatever leftist perspective, like it's, it's easy to imagine a world where maybe if COVID had been a little worse and like things had accelerated to a point where like societal, like quote unquote collapse happened and the prison gates were flung open. And, you know, so I, I think that there was like a lot of kind of uncertainty as to like what way this was going to go. And like, I think a hope, obviously not just for the people who are experiencing incarceration, but for people who, you know, like have a kind of fundamental opposition to the institution of the prison, like there is a desire to like see this shit collapse and like see this shit get really untenable so that maybe we could transition to a different system. And I think that there was like a measure of, mm, yeah, I don't know, like understandable disappointment. You know, again, it's like not my perspective. I don't know. I go back and forth. I don't know. And, you know, COVID, I think like too, like I look around now and like, it seems to me like society has changed in so many ways, like pre and post COVID. But there are so many things that like, obviously, like fundamentally didn't change, but it accelerated a lot of things. So a lot of like bad shit got worse. And like, I think that there's like a lot of seeds that were planted in 2020 that like have not yet grown. And like, we mm, probably won't have a good idea of like the full impact of COVID for another decade. Um, mm -hmm. You mentioned time. You mentioned time was one of the main ingredients in making bread. You sure. brought up time slowing down during COVID. And as I mentioned, one of the first things I wrote for my blog was a question from you about time. Totally. You asked me about my relationship with time since I entered prison. I'm curious, what's your relationship with time? Obviously, there's perhaps some fascination or connection. You were writing the album when you were writing me in prison, which had a lot to do with time. Yeah. So what, what, yeah, what is your relationship or connection to time? What, what interests you about it? Well, I mean, it's, it's an incredibly like fundamental, you know, it's, it's part of space. It's interwoven into the fabric of space. And it's like, we just take for granted that it kind of like flows around us at this certain speed that we think to be immutable and like, okay, the submarine that just imploded on the bottom of the ocean or whatever. Now they're saying that people died, you know, before their brains even realized it. But like, you know, for those like five days or whatever, where they were like, oh, they're running out of oxygen. One has to think of like the different ways that you perceive time. And we've all felt it working a shitty job. You know, you're like looking at the clock and it's like time seems to crawl, you know, and it's like you're in a flow state doing something you enjoy and you're talking to a friend or whatever. And then all of a sudden three hours have gone by. You know? So like we have these kind of different perspectives of it. And I think like when I wrote to you, I was like so fascinated by like the way it flows when one is incarcerated because my mind like jumps to like, what well, it's got to fucking crawl in there. But something you said in that letter was the years feel like days and the days feel like years. That being like a common thing that people experience when incarcerated. And like, I think people experience that no matter what. It's just so flexible and yet treated as so as so constant and it is constant but it's just such a weird thing that we experience in in this linear way and i 
you know, I started thinking about like how, you know, this linear experience of time like shapes our ideas of progress and like how different societies have viewed time as cyclical and like how our perception of time and the way that we count forward in time is like, you know, either a reflection of or informs what our trajectory as a society and as individuals is. It's interesting to kind of like think of time in different contexts other than that kind of linear march. It's interesting to think of time as something flexible. It's interesting to think of time as something that repeats and is cyclical. And it kind of like maybe frees us from this this notion that like we just have to wait. The moment will come. And it's like, no, that moment is like all around us. It's ever changing and like it's hard to describe. <laughs> I don't think I ever got any closer. You know, like I kind of like started writing that record and I was like, well, I'm going to try and jot some of my thoughts down about time. And like, I don't think I ever got any close anywhere close to a coherent. I'm stammering right now. I'm like, mm -hmm. you know, it's like how and it's so weird because it's so fundamental and we just yeah. and we just sit within its flow and it's just like so hard to like is it entropy is it like is it just simply my molecules spitting off protons and stuff is that how i perceive it or like how does a fly feel time is it slower like it's just this weird thing and 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 it's so uh it's everywhere and, it, and it's hard to put your finger on and i thought it was interesting anyway to hear your perspective and i'm re i reread that letter that you sent me in that blog post that you put up about it and it's it's just interesting the way that the that the human mind adapts to different circumstances and like some of the things that like remain unchanged and some of the things i don't know the ways that the body and especially the brain adapt to different circumstances like people spending time in solitary like i i mean to me i can't even think about that like i can't even like it blows my mind that people spend not even just a little bit of time but like years of their lives in solitary confinement that blows my mind. Like the way that one must perceive the flow of time must be so, I mean, it is, it, it's disorienting. You know, everything about that experience is designed to, to disorient, you know, the, the removal of, of a body like into a confined space comes with it. The removal of a body in time, like into this like confined time where like it's subject, it's like a hall of mirrors. It's like subject to, you know, warping and, and distortions. And, um, yeah, so it was, it was really interesting to hear your perspective on it. And For me, honestly, I remember sending that letter off to you, and I felt very inadequate at the time in my response. Right? It, I mean, it's a hard thing to talk about, and I just, I, you know, not that, like, I felt pressured, but I was like, oh, this, this isn't going to hold up to what this person is looking for, was my okay. initial thought. But I'm glad I, I responded, and I'm glad that it urged me to, like, that was one of the first things I shared in my blog. You know, solitary in time. I spent a few weeks there during and COVID. You were saying, yeah, when I yeah. when I got COVID, that's they sent us to solitary yeah. when we got yeah. COVID. Uh, the first time, I can get into what happened the next two times we had COVID after this. There was this bright light that they never turned off, um, mm -hmm. which was like that was rough because the sun really helps you understand the passing of time, and like in there, you don't. Really? get that the light is just on 24 hours a day but was it noisy too was it like a humming fluorescent light <clears throat> no it wasn't really that noisy um okay. 
but you know, this is a human is very adaptable, and that's a blessing and a curse. I remember when they shut the door. I was terrified. That was probably one of the most psychologically terrifying moments for me. Like when they first like brought you in there and shut the door. And shut the door. You know, it's a solid door. There's no window out. You don't see anything. Yeah. Just psychologically, it, it terrified. I don't remember really feeling like that at any other point in my life. Yeah. And the first couple of days were raw. But I'll be honest, by like day seven, I had a routine. I was pretty comfortable in there. And, you know, that's why I guess it's a blessing and a curse, right? It's like, it's a blessing to get out of that psychological distress and, and not feel that because I didn't want to stay in that state. But the curse is, I'm like, oh, I'm in solitary. This ain't too bad. You know? Yeah. And it's like, should I really be saying that? Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, totally. You know, there's that like that critique of like existentialist thought, the, the Sisyphus, be, one must imagine Sisyphus happy. It's like, no, Sisyphus, get pissed. Like, why the <laughs> fuck are you rolling that boulder up that hill? Well, um, another thing that you were saying, too, in this letter about time that I was rereading was that you had you had gotten into before you went in was practice meditation. Yeah. And, like, I think that there's so much about that solitary experience that, like, you know, like I think, like, the, 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 the picture of solitude, you know, when one pictures, like, maybe a peaceful solitude is, like, you know, a person in nature and maybe like connected to other forms of life and like maybe finding some transcendence from the self, you know, like not the human connection, but like still a connection. Like, again, like so much about the experience of solitary is designed to like obliterate that like introspection. And like, you know, you're under a light all the time. Like you're like, there's interruptions, you know, in, in all sorts of ways. And like, it's like the difference between like solitary and solitude. Did you find it? Were there challenges? You know, like I would imagine like, you know, you practice or like prepare, you know, your mind for like these kind of like extended periods of solitude and stuff. Like, were there challenges that came to your mind? Like, I know you said you had a routine set up by, you know, like day seven. Were there like challenges to your like thought processes or like unexpected kind of like edges of growth that like your mind went through kind of through this experience of like total, like literal solitude? So, well, yeah, meditation was something I intentionally began practicing when I was fighting my case. When I got arrested, I spent a night in a holding cell by myself and that and it just a holding cell. And I was like, I, yes. I do not like this. I knew I was going to prison eventually. I didn't know immediately then. I honestly, when I first got arrested, I thought I wasn't. My thought was, oh, it's just weed. I'm not going to go. How did you get arrested? I mean, did you, if you're fine, Sharon, but like, did you get like pulled over? Like, no. So I don't know how much you knew or know, but like, we had an airplane and the pilot ended up snitching and leading the yeah, feds right. to okay. me. Yeah. yeah. That's right. Okay. So yeah, I actually never got caught with any marijuana in my possession. Fair enough. Though I got charged with a lot of marijuana in my possession. I'll get back to your question in a second. I will. I want to say one thing. This is fascinating. Yeah. Ghost drugs. Uh, have you ever heard that term? Uh, I don't think so. No, it's it's common in prison. They found like four or five hundred pounds of marijuana on the airplane. But they charged us with like two thousand. Oh. And, and it is, happens all the time. Like yeah. guys get charged with drugs they never found. And and. You know, on the inside, we call it ghost drugs. And it's just, it's so infuriating that they could charge you with something they never found. 
But anyway, it's like dumb enough that they're gonna charge you for fucking pot anyway. You yeah. know, like, mm-hmm. so it wasn't even there. But yeah, meditation uh, I intentionally started because I didn't like being in that holding cell, and it was very valuable practice for me in prison and in solitary. But the most challenging thing in solitary was waking up every morning. It sucked to wake up because you open your eyes. And the first thing you see is that solid door. Because when you sleep, you, you forget you're in there, right? It's like, it, it's this escape. And then waking up in the mornings was very hard. I remember writing my fiance about how much I was struggling in the mornings in solitary to like just wake up and be like, fuck, this is where I'm at. Yeah. And then when I started my routine, it would help me kind of get out of that mindset. What would you do to get out of that initial, oh, fuck? I'm still in fucking solitary. Like, was there mm-hmm. anything you found helpful to kind of like break yourself out of that? Sometimes I would try to think about being in places that I really enjoyed. I'm not going to get too much into it, but honestly, one of the yes. things that helped the most was just thinking about like personal time with my wife. Honestly, that like, re- it was like one of the things that kind of like broke the psychological terror of like waking up and seeing that door. You know, that's right. And I think that just has to do with the element of human connection because that door symbolizes you don't have human connection. So to to have something to think of that counters that. But yeah, that was probably like the hardest moments for me. It was just like waking up every day, being reminded that that's where I was in that time. I'm reminded of when I was doing drugs, I would wake up and I'd be sick and I'd be like, God fucking damn it. Because, you know, like, at least with my experience with doing heroin and downers and stuff, it was like always you're trying to just, like, get away from reality and, like, spend time just either asleep or, like, you know, high. Obviously, there's some huge and tangible differences between, like, the quote-unquote prison of addiction and, like, a literal prison. But, like, that feeling of, like, oh, fuck, this is where I'm at is, like, a familiar one to me. So, like, I, mm-hmm. I, I feel that. I would imagine in many ways the prison you were in was worse because it's self-inflicted. I, I think those are the worst prisons to be in or the ones that we put it's ourselves its own, in. It's its own kind of hell for sure. Yeah. I mean, having, you know, been incarcerated by the federal government, I can say that sucked, but I've also through that experience, it helped me realize there was times in my own life where I created prisons that, mm. Honestly, we're far more damaging on myself and relationships to people around me. Mm. I mean, you know, and I'm not saying being literally physically incarcerated is not a big deal because it is. No, totally. Yeah, totally. But I think the damage that we cause to our our greater selves, our inner selves, by creating our own psychological prisons often is is far, far more encompassing of who we are as a human. Totally. Because you can get lost in that more than you can get lost in a prison. Yeah. And it's like hard to see, you know, it's like you've got, you wake up and you've got the door to stare at, but it's like, it gets really hard to even see that door or like even realize that you like are doing this to yourself on the kind of like psychological imprisonment that we subject ourselves to sometimes. It's like it, it, it can be insidiously hard to realize that that's even happening. So we've been talking for a while now without even getting into some of the things I want to talk about. I'll I'll say real quick, so I mentioned this. I went to solitary because I had COVID. That's what they did with us. You know, the next two times that COVID came in the prison, 
I, w- I would say I'm pretty sure he came into prison. We all got sick, but no one said anything because no one wanted to go back to solitary. Yeah. So that was like our initial response was like, just let it spread through the prison because we don't want to go back there. You know, okay. which is, I mean, and, and honestly, like I had no problem with that at the time. Like, you know, I feel you. I, yeah, I feel you. Um, you mentioned tarot, which was one of the things I want to talk about, but then we just kind of talked about this psychological prison that we can put ourselves in, yeah. which is making me think about inner work and alchemy. I, I know you had mentioned this. Like, are you, I'm just curious, like, are you familiar with this concept of like psychological spiritual alchemy? Is this something that you are just getting into? Like, I have kind of a passing familiarity with it. It's something I'm kind of, I'm kind of just getting into. I mean, inner work, I think is something that like, you have to do a certain amount of inner work, like especially like in like part of recovery is like inner work. And like, I mean, I still compulsively smoke weed. So there's like, (laughs) the work is never done. That is to say, (laughs) But I think that there like is an element of, you know, inner spiritual work that needs to get done to like come out of places like that. So, you know, like my experience with alchemy, you know, it's like the transmutation of of materials and the transmutation of, you know, the human soul kind of through this encounter with materials. It's a very kind of provisional area of my interest like i started like reading like some young last year and like kind of have taken some cautious and trepidatious steps into like that kind of area of jungian like kind of psychoanalysis um has been like an interest of mine over the past like year and like i think that like that perspective on like the occult and the paranormal and the parapsychological being reflections of and like having impacts on our waking life like in alchemy you know there's that concept of like the black sun or whatever and like that it it kind of like exists like at the like negation existing like the at the core of creation and like the two being you know part of the same process and part of the same motion and like interhappening and interconnectedness um of creation and negation the thing that's really interesting to me about like alchemy and like the occult is like what it brings to bear like on psychology because it's like so interest it's so easy to be like well alchemy you know they were trying to turn you know lead into gold and like it's about the transmutation of materials that's just like impossible and like it's stupid and i think like the prevailing kind of like view of alchemy has been so mm, like viewing people practicing alchemy as like naive or like on a wild goose chase or after red herrings or whatever. And I think like that there's, there's kind of like a growing conversation around like the psychological dimension to alchemy and like its connection with the underworld or like the collective unconscious that like, you know, one finds in our moments alone. Like, I mean, like the corners of our mind, you know, it's how does one like encounter like what one finds within one's self. And like one of those ways historically like was through alchemy and like 
Yeah, that's a really interesting thing. I don't know a ton about it. I'm just just kind of dabbling and learning and and always learning. It sounds like it sounds like you have some background or like have devoted some thought. I also read on your blog, I read the post about coffee in which you talked about like the transmutation of like experience like through this thing of like, you know, you talked about like one of your first or maybe your first day being locked up, someone coming to you with coffee and that like transforming your experience and stuff and like thinking about like the material dimension towards like the transmutation of the soul and stuff. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think that that stuff is really fascinating. And like mm-hmm. maybe, maybe you could kind of like expound on how you feel. Yeah, during my incarceration, I became fascinated with alchemy and the process. I was having people send me material on it and books on it and stuff. That's interesting that you caught that in, in my blog. There's some other areas there too where I kind of slipped some of that in. Uh, I wrote about personal authority and becoming a more whole person and it was half of that post was political but the other half kind of had this like alchemical feel to it it was very nuanced and that was intentional on my end but yeah i i do appreciate you taking the time to notice that so young what he posits is that the alchemist as you said they were working with materials and conducting these experiments with materials and their work with the material young puts forth that they were just working out in the material world how to engage the unconscious right that's what they were doing it was more of a psychological process that you can better engage when you practiced within the material world it's just because the, the unconscious is something that it's unconscious. We're unaware of it. So how do you begin to explore something that you're not even aware of? So to have something tangible to help you do that work seemed really helpful. Totally. Um, so that's like a very basic understanding of like what Jung puts forth. And like a lot of that seems to be, yeah, it's symbolic, you know, and it's about uniting the conscious and the unconscious together. Cause as humans, we, we give so much credit to, uh, the ego and mm-hmm. and when i say ego like I, most people probably think of a negative connotation with that but in a psychological perspective the ego it's just i it's just who i am you know your ego is who you are it, it's not a, a negative you know ego is just our conscious mind what we're aware of and we give so much credit to that but this it's a known fact that the majority of how we go through the world comes from the unconscious then we just rationalize it. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, you know, and the easiest way to understand this for people who are more rational is like, well, you don't think about like your muscle fibers when you want to move your arm, right? If the unconscious does that for you, you know, you don't think about you're pumping your heart. Like it's all carried out through the unconscious. And the unconscious is actually a much larger part of the brain because it's doing so much. It's much larger than a conscious part of the brain. So it's doing all these things at once. Carl Jung he he looked at animals and was seeing that since animals have these instincts, you know, like ants can make these elaborate colonies. I mean, some ants are even like farmers where they're like they intentionally are cutting leaves, putting them in the ground to grow, you know, and, they, and he's like, well, how can these animals or birds like, you know, they just know we have this instinct to go fly in a certain direction for thousands of miles. And he's saying if animals have this instinct that humans have to have something very similar um, within the unconscious. Essentially, 
that's what you had mentioned the collective unconscious and that's what Jung was referring to. And so there's all this information within the unconscious. Uh, parts of it are, like we said, the collective unconscious. There's also the shadow, which Jung mm -hmm. uh, coined that term. He says that's in the personal unconscious, which is a little different than the collective unconscious because everyone's shadow is different. Um, the shadow is basically all the things about yourself that you don't like or don't want to admit, so you hide them away there uh, into your shadow, which is part of it. It's a kind of closer to you than a collective unconscious. The, the problem with that is when you hide things there, you kind of think, all right, I solved this problem with me. It's like hidden. It's, it's not a problem anymore. But actually what happens is you lose control over that thing, and then that thing, therefore, can then control you and cause you to behave in ways that wouldn't consciously want to behave, right? And I, I'm not going to share it now. I probably will at some point on the podcast. I, I had a story, an experience in prison where that happened to me. Like I was, I caused a lot of like pain for my fiance. Um, I was worried our relationship was going to end, and you know she wanted to know like what happened, like why I behaved the way I did, and and that led me on a journey to try and understand where all this came from. Long story short, like, and this might sound strange to people, but I had this encounter with the unconscious and that's how I got really interested with all this work because in the unconscious is all these things that we think, or we don't, we, we don't think are there, but they're, they're influencing us. Things that happened when we were kids that can come out years later, but we're not even aware of it. And it can affect our behavior in ways that we have no concept of. For lack of a better word, it's like being possessed by a spirit, right? This mm -hmm. something, you know, like we say, like, what possessed me to do that? You know, or what possessed them to do that? Well, it's something from the unconscious possessed people to behave in certain ways. But the work of alchemy, essentially, the goal is to unite the conscious and the unconscious. And when you do that, you become a more whole person. You engage the self. and until you make the conscious and unconscious allies, you can't really be a whole person. Mm. So that, and then the work of alchemy, there's like seven stages actually in alchemy that are part of that process. And it's not like there is a linear order, like they can go in different orders and repeat themselves and stuff. I'm not going to get into them all right now, but uh -huh. you know, I'm not, I'm not going to say alchemy is the most, important work one can do but um becoming a more whole person i think is some of the most probably the most important work one can do in one's life if i had to say to somebody what's the most important thing they could do i would say learn to become a whole person and mm. the way you do that is you you have to engage the unconscious in a conscious way and that's mm. not easy it's scary because um, mm -hmm. there's a lot of things there that mm -hmm. that can be terrifying there's things about ourselves that we don't want to know and that's why they're there right but there's also tremendous benefit and energy and knowledge we could do a whole nother podcast but like archetypes and things that you had mm -hmm. mentioned reside there as well yeah i think i definitely agree with you when you say you know like the most important thing one can do in one's life is try to become a whole person you know like I mean, like this, this society we live in is like, it's just us, you know, it's just people. It's just, it's just us. And like, 
when we talk about like anything that involves making the world a better place, which, you know, ostensibly, if that's not your goal in life, like, I don't, I mean, I don't know what you're doing. It, it starts from within and like, it's at the very least, it's concurrent with growth that happens from within because like we, our starting point, our current society, our, our profit driven, the, the principles around which like we ostensibly organize our society around, which is profit, basically, that's it. It's not compatible with inner work like that, or, or rather it is compatible with inner work in a certain framing of it. And you see that with people like who are like, they take this kind of like Jungian vocabulary and kind of miss the point where it's like, there's a lot of discussion about like going into the unconscious mind to like slay the dragon or like conquer the unconscious mind. And like, you know, you think about like the ego and like how it can feel like this little capitalist, you know, that like lives within us taking credit for like all of the work that's getting done by like the factory of the collective unconscious and like the thought of inner growth as like, go entering the collective unconscious and like extracting some value to like bring back to the conscious world. And like, I don't know, like, honestly, that's, that's like a tough line to walk. I think with art where it's like when I'm writing music and I'm writing lyrics, the best thing I can do is empty my head and just let whatever forces are there guide my hand and that's the best way to make art that is authentic and rooted in something deeper than kind of frequently surface level thoughts of the, you know, the conscious mind. Um, but, you know, there's a line to walk between like, is this encounter with the unconscious, like enriching our understanding of ourselves, or are we just kind of like using it to like, like a cap, like, look at this thing that I made, you know, it's like, Maybe that I, you know, like, I think like there's a lot of schools of thought that like treat that I as kind of like an illusion and like treat that like unconscious mind as like primary, um, you know, like in a lot of like Eastern philosophies and stuff. To what you were saying, like, I think like the unification or maybe not even like unification of those two sides of, of oneself, but like the recognition that like there exists within us like this ocean of just like mystery that will never see the light of day and like that's good and that's fine and like mystery is good and like you know it's it's bad when like you have these like you were saying like like a loss of control to these kind of like unconscious forces and like a lot of there's a lot of kind of like thought about like you know psychosis and like where psychosis comes from and like if that's rooted in, you know, like trauma or something that's like dominating one's experience in the world. That's not to say like we should leave these things like unexplored, but it, it's like I think that there's like a tendency to like encounter the unconscious or like the darkness, honestly, that's like that's darkness without a negative connotation. But it's like these things that don't see the light of day, like within ourselves, there's kind of like a it takes strategy, you know, like it takes strategy to like look within oneself and know a like where things are coming from like like if you have certain like thoughts like i think about a lot of unlearning that i've done about like these patriarchal beliefs that like exist in my head from a young age about like what men are entitled to or whatever in in the world how a person you know with a body like mine operates in the world and it's kind of like a 
weeding through, you know, like a lot of like what we find in there and like, and like, it takes a discerning kind of eye and a lot of practice. And like you said, like a lot of work and it's easier. I think you're right to hear you say it. Like, I think like it's easier with material tools. Like, I think like alchemy, the step of alchemy, I can't remember what it's called, but I think it's like one of those steps, like where it's like everything is brought down to like putrefaction or something. It's Mm -hmm. like everything is brought down to like the same kind of like blackened material base. And it's like, okay, in that, like, we recognize, you know, ourselves and, like, this kind of peering, you know, through the structures that have been erected in our unconscious minds, like, by ourselves and by society, like, kind of, like, appearing through that to, like, this underlying substance that's present in our minds. And, like, what do we do with that? Maybe that's not even the right question. Like, what do we do with it? It's, like, maybe it's, like, when we stop asking that question is when, like, we're able to, like, integrate some of that into our intuition and like kind of like open up these like channels i don't know like you were saying like like so much so many of our actions like you think about muscle fibers and stuff like so many of our actions like are done like on an on a pre-conscious level that are then rationalized you know like how does one most effectively and like most strategically you know in a wholesome way like figure out where these feelings and actions are like welling up from within us and like how do you how can you kind of have some semblance of control over that while still leaving the unconscious to like operate on its own terms? You know, like again, to tie back to art and music and stuff is like, as I've gotten more experienced writing songs and lyrics and stuff, I feel more comfortable getting into a flow state. It's almost like reverse where it's like the things I do in my conscious life, those things will inform what bubbles up from me that's beyond my control and like it's not so simple as like input output but like it's like these two things these conscious and unconscious experience that are like ceaselessly kind of like informing each other it's how you know we come to trust our own actions and our intuitions and like we saw this during covid too and like there are these breaks you know we, we all get into these like routines of work and that's on an individual level and a societal level but there's no way to prevent the introduction of like grains of sand into the machinery. Like there's always going to be something that like will eventually disrupt the flow. I mean, that's an evolutionary thing. That's it. You see that on cellular mutations, you know, like there's always something to like interrupt the quote unquote proper functioning of a social or a personal, you know, machine. And like, it's in those moments like how do we react to those things and like what do we do with those reactions like what grows out of that you know garden is it feels beyond our control but at the same time like it is informed by things that are in our control and like that's like what i think is so interesting about like magic in general and like magic with a k at the end and i'm really fascinated by and alchemy ties into this is like this kind of materialist almost understanding of like <laughs> wing nutty like you know alchemy is like is pretty fucking wing nutty when you when you get down or it's viewed that way in our society like it's like very much like quackery kind of and like the tarot is like this kind of arcane thing but like when you get down to it it's like really just this like useful tool for engaging with our unconscious mind you see this with sigil work sigil magic and stuff and it's ways of accessing effectively and strategically our unconscious mind and developing it and there's a risk like i was saying like i don't want to be the real estate developer of my unconscious mind i don't want my ego to 
be the capitalist of the factory, the unconscious. So, you know, like I think the two, I think the two like inform each other. And it's just this kind of like conversation that happens between these two sides of maybe not two, maybe, maybe multiple sides of ourselves. Um, that's what draws me to like thinking about stuff like alchemy. That to me is, is super interesting. Yeah. And you mentioned doing like this inner work and becoming more whole requires strategies and tools. Alchemy has presented me with the, the best strategy that I've come across in doing such work. And in regards to the ego and why this work is so hard is because the ego likes to be in charge, right? It likes to think it's in charge, but in order to do this work, the ego has to admit that there's something larger than itself, the unconscious that could know more than the ego. And that's really hard for the ego to do. And that's why it's so hard for people to get started on this work or even to like accept such concepts, right? Because the ego doesn't want to admit there's something that could be larger and more powerful than the ego itself. Totally. But, you know, we've been going for a while now. There was so much more I wanted to talk to you about. You Maybe one day we can have you back on. But I'm wondering if we end here, would you be able to stick around for 15 minutes and kind of talk to me on the back end of our podcast about UFOs? All right, cool. Yeah. You had mentioned UFOs, and I have no idea what you were talking about, so I'd love to hear more about this, and we can kind of put it on as a bonus thing on the back end of our podcast for folks. Totally. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on the show and talking about everything you did. It's been an awesome conversation. Thank you for your friendship. Yeah. From the time I was like receiving letters in prison from you to getting out and, and hugging you at that show yeah. to receiving bread. Um, you know, you've connected me with other folks in this, uh, the folk punk community. You know, you and April uh, have been super amazing. You're two of my, like, the people that I have a lot of respect and admiration for since people I met when I got out. Like, I hold you both close to my heart because you've both been so helpful and inspiring. So thank you. Thank you. Seriously. I mean, it goes both ways. It should go without saying, but I'll say it. the position that you've occupied in this scene and like a fixture of kind of like the history of something that I feel a part of and like knowing the history and the influence that you yourself have had and, and the efforts that you've brought to fruition have had on not my life, but literally so many lives and like so many people like yeah you're a fucking legend and like i just really truly am appreciative of you and your friendship as well thank you for having me on it's such a privilege to fucking see your face and like <laughs> not be not just know that you're you're and like lee is so fucking sweet like your fiance is so fucking sweet and like you know the reason i hugged you so hard is just like it's emotional for me it's a symbol of history and solidarity and, and it's, it's a beautiful thank you Jeff. yeah likewise Thanks for checking out this episode. I want to let you all know that we have a Patreon now. You can access it at patreon.com slash back on the grind. We'll put a link in the show notes too. John sat down and talked about his encounter with a UFO. So you'll hear that if you join the Patreon. We're also upping our Patreon game and going to have more material. We're going to have entire full episodes we're going to be offering patches. We got back in the grind patches and bandit coffee roaster patches. 
if you're interested in joining the Patreon, we'll send you those. I also want to thank you for just checking out the show. This has been really great, and we've had a lot of really cool listener feedback. We're going to get into more of that, and we've had great communication with people. If there's anything that you want us to talk about on the show or a situation that you're dealing with that you would like to hear feedback on, send us an email. You can email us at podcast at backonthegrindrecords.com. 